6 o'clock. Uh, then this Saturday, we have the women's ministry, and we're doing it here at the church at 10 o'clock. Are we bringing any food? A breakfast item. So 10 o'clock here at the church on Saturday morning, women's ministry. Jeremiah's is in Branson, Missouri this morning. Is he? Yeah. Oh, so that's why. Oh, it did. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, once you get up, talk to your neighbor and say, hey, how are you doing? This, you're loved by Jesus. You're welcome this morning. We're going to be uh, being taught by Grant this morning, and I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Beautiful. Come on, anytime. My my April, our April right now is wide open. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to be busy this month and in May, but April we're wide open right now. Keisha works every other weekend, but uh, yeah, we'll get it. All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. I told Brian he gave me a dangerous amount of time, so uh, but no, it's it's uh, honor to be here this morning. In Hazard this morning, it was beautiful. And so, yeah, so when I started my journey here this morning, I was like, I'm going to turn around and go back to Hazard, because it was beautiful in Hazard this morning. Amen. We're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Also, I guess, Stacey, um, is Marcus still going to be here? Okay, so what's that date? April 3rd? 3rd, ain't it? First Sunday of April. Yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure it's the 3rd. Uh, Marcus, yeah, April 3rd, Marcus Wick will be here. Marcus is from out in Colorado Springs, uh, close with Andrew Womack's ministry. and I consider Marcus a good friend. He, uh, We had an Army Zoom meeting the other night, and Marcus was the teacher of it. And just really blessed me. and So he, he'll bless you when he comes here in, here in a few weeks, so... Amen. All right, we're going to begin with Matthew chapter 13 this morning. And uh, 24. Matthew 13, verse 24. And I'm actually going to pick up where I left off a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I began talking about the security of the believer. And uh, this has turned into a series. um, And and I'm not going to finish it today. I'll finish it again in a few weeks uh, when I minister again. Uh, so it's at least a three-part series. But um, So this morning, if, if you weren't here, this message is stand on its own because we're, we're going to do a lot of review and things like that. Uh, here's what I've found as I minister this message. As I've been traveling around, I've been ministering this message everywhere I go. And what I'm learning quickly is this message offends some, but it liberates many. It, um, for, for every person that gets offended when I teach this, there's, there's five who get blessed, you know, and, get, and just get set free. So, uh, but let, let's look here, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 this morning, then we'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm going this morning. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So, so the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst, thou, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then have it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Will thou then that we go and gather them up? This right here, their question is the whole reason I'm reading this this morning. And look at verse 29. But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's jump down to verse 36 in this same chapter. And Jesus is going to give us the interpretation of this. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went to the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. 
He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I'm actually here for one reason. Um, so Jesus gives a parable. He gives a teaching about a farmer who sows good seed in his field. But while he slept, an enemy comes and he sows, we could call it bad seed in the field, and he calls, Jesus calls these tares, and the good seed is wheat. Now, tares in that part of the world at this time, they actually were different than just what we would look at as weed, right, weeds. They, they're, they're actually poisonous during this time. Uh, what Jesus had in mind here was poisonous. Now, what we would call tares... Uh, the way many people have took this parable and taught it is they're in the church, there's good and there's bad, right? Jesus even taught that in another parable. Listen, every kingdom, there's good, there's bad. But people have taught this, there's the true converts and then there's the false converts. And because of that, they've took this message or this teaching and their, their primary message, I know because it used to be my message, it's making you doubt your salvation, right? Because we don't know who's wheat, we don't know who's a tear, right? We don't know who's the good seed, we don't know who's the bad seed. So the only way that we can figure it out is if we try to, to make people feel so guilty that, that they have to figure out whether or not they're actually saved. But now there's something interesting here. Jesus says that the servants come up and they say, listen, there's some tares. Do you want us to go root them up? Now, Jesus says no. And he says, because in doing that, you'll root up the wheat with the tares. When we preach a message that is constantly making people question and doubt their salvation, the only people who truly are affected are the true believers. Believers that have truly trusted in Jesus, have placed their faith in Jesus, they're the ones that get hurt. What do you mean? How many services have you left, not here, but in the past? How many services did you leave? I know that used to be every Sunday of my life. And usually I was the one preaching. I get up and preach and I go home and I'm like, I'm not even saved. <laughs> Why, if that's the way it is, there's no way I'm making it. Right? But here's the thing. Making people doubt their salvation is not a message that Jesus approves. Not according to this parable. According to this parable, making people doubt their salvation is not something Jesus is behind because all it does is hurt people who have trusted in Jesus. Right? Because what it does is it points you back to your performance. And your performance will never be good enough. Never. I don't care how good you live, your performance will never, ever, ever be good enough. Right? But let's look here at 1 John chapter 5. So we're going to lay a foundation this morning, then we're going to do a little review about what we're talking about. But 1 John chapter 5, 
See, I grew up with this understanding, and I don't think it was necessarily preached to me, but I grew up with this understanding. This was my view of salvation. I come to Jesus, and me coming to Jesus is me doing this. All right, from this point on, I'll do better. And when I mess up, I got you, Jesus, right? You, you, you'll forgive me when I confess it and when I start doing right again, right? It's more, I didn't look at salvation as access to the throne. I looked at it as access to God, like access to, to the blood, right? Instead of, instead of being without forgiveness, I now had access to forgiveness, yeah. all right? So that was my understanding, and I thought, all right, so I'm signing the contract. All right, I'll do better from this point on. And then on Judgment Day, the balances are going to be there. My good works are going to be put on one side. My bad works are going to be put on one side. And I just hope that the good works are heavier than the bad works. right? So I did not believe that there was any security in being a believer in Jesus. I didn't think there was any security in being a Christian. But now, we see Jesus doesn't approve of a message that is insecure. Right? I thought about calling this the insecurity of the believer because more believers are insecure about their salvation than they are secure. Why? Because most believers' salvation, they think it hinges on their performance, not his. Their work, not his. All right? But look here at 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 11. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. It's that simple. He doesn't say he that has the Son of God and some works, he's got life, right? He just says he that has the Son, he has life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. We make that so complicated, grace preachers included. Somebody comes up to you, what about people who don't have the Son? Do they have life? Well, you know, no, you don't have life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. You have the Son, you have life. It's, we can go home, all right? It's that simple. We can go home. All right, the only reason that we have to bring this out is because for thousands of years now, the church has messed it up. For 2,000 years now, the church has messed this message up. And even when people like Martin Luther came along and gave us a reformation of sorts, it didn't take long for that bunch to start foggy in the waters once again. Right? So let's, let's look up here. Let's, let's go to 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So is he talking to believers here? Come on. Yep. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John was, he was known, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? He was, he was one of Jesus' uh, top three. Uh, he was in the inner circle. And John, he would have been there when Jesus taught on the, on the wheat and, and the tares. John came away with the idea, listen, we can know that we have eternal life. And, and here's the funny thing. Most people use the book of 1 John to make people doubt their salvation. But if you begin here, everything John says that we write, everything that you find written, he says it's written for one reason. What? that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you may doubt that you have eternal life, but that you may know that you have eternal life. We can have security. We can have confidence. Let's go to John chapter 10, 
So the same John that wrote that wrote what we're about to read. John chapter 10, we're going to begin with verse, um, what did I say, 22? Yeah, verse 22. All right, John chapter 10, verse 22. Now, we read this last time, but I want to bring this out. And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long does you, do you make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. And I brought this out last time. This is the heart cry of Christians today, but now it's not if you're the Christ. It's, hey, if we're saved, tell us. Right? That, that's still the question. It's still like, hey, quit making us doubt. Just tell us. And Jesus tells them here. Look here. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, here's why we're here, verse 28. And I give unto them eternal life, not temporal life, not maybe life, not life until you mess it up again, not life until you uh, sin again, not life until, until you get all your sins confessed, not life until you get baptized, eternal life. And the word eternal, I bring this out a lot, but the word eternal just does not just mean forever from this point on. It means once you step into this life, it's as if there was no beginning and there's no end. It's as if you've always been in this place. All right? Now look here what he says, though. And I give unto them eternal life. Now notice he says, I give. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. He gives it to you. All you do with a gift is receive it, all right? And they shall never perish. It's not a maybe. It's not a might. It's not an if. They shall never perish. Now, look here. This is why we're here. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, the word man is italicized. Now, not here on the screen because we don't have that, but like here in my Bible, the word man is italicized. And what that means is it's not in the original languages. The translators added it because they thought that made more sense, that that would help us understand it better. So the way I used to teach this verse is, listen, Jesus saved me, and can't nobody make me not saved. Right? J Jesus saved me. It's not up to anyone else whether or not I'm saved. But yet I would then turn around and say, but now I am the one that can pluck myself out of his hand. Right? No, the word man is not there. And that word any in the Greek, you can look it up on Blue Letter Bible, the word any means any, anything, anything at all. So this is what this literally says. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anything at all pluck them out of my hand. Guess what? If it's any man, that doesn't include sin. But if it's anything at all, that includes sin. That includes your bad times. That, inclu that includes your good times. There's nothing that can take you out of his hand. Now look at verse 29 here. He says kind of the same thing, but look. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man, again, man is italicized, no thing at all is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Well, what's the point in saying that? I and my father are one. So he's saying, so here's the illustration I gave last time, and I, and I want to give it to you this time. So 
when every day when I pick Graham up from school, usually we have to cross the road after I get him. Now, he can be walking alongside me, he can be walking in front of me, he can be walking behind me, but the moment we get to the end of the sidewalk, he stops, I take his hand, and I get him across the road. All right? Now, here's why that's powerful. He says, my father is greater than all. What's he saying? My father is stronger at all. The moment we come to Christ, it's like the moment me and Graham get to that sidewalk, right? He takes my hand, and I have such a strong grip on him crossing that road. Why? Because I've seen people drive it, you know, through there. They will take your head off, all right? I know the dangers. So I have such a tight grip on Graham that I'm telling you, Graham cannot get out of my hand. He cannot. He could wiggle, he could wrestle, and I'm telling you, I'm stronger than him. If he tried to get out, you know what I do? I just pick him up, throw him over my shoulder, and get him across the road. Why? Because I'm stronger than him, or I'm greater than him, right, in the terms of strength. That's the way salvation is. God takes you by the hand. He puts your hand in his, and he takes the responsibility to get you to the other side. All right? So when... What am I doing? When I take Graham's hand to get him across the road, I'm saying, Graham, without saying these words, what I'm essentially saying is, Graham, it is now my responsibility to get you from here to there. That's salvation. Jesus, the Father, they've taken it upon themselves. They've made it their responsibility to get you from here to there. All right? It's his responsibility. And no thing at all can take us out of his hand. If you think something can take you out of his hand, you think you're stronger than God. But he, that's why Jesus said, my father, he's greater than all. Just replace it with the word stronger. My father, he's stronger than all. And the moment you say, I can take myself out of the father's hand, you are saying that I am greater than the father. I am stronger than the father. And that's, that's ludicrous. So why talk about this? The need and desire for assurance and security when it comes to salvation, this is the why of legalism. The reason people get into legalism, they're good, they, they mean well, uh, but it is because they want security for their salvation. They want to know that they know that they know when this thing ends... They're going to be with Jesus forever. That when this thing ends, it's not over, right? It's only beginning. They, they want to know that they know that they know that they have eternal life. This is also the why of powerless Christianity. The reason people never, be, never get to the place of doing kingdom business is because they're still here on this foundational thing trying to make sure they have eternal life. All right? So it's the debate, and, um, you know, I answer a lot of questions for people, and I, I get it all the time, and since I've been teaching this message over the last few months at different churches and things, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up to me and like, yeah, I get it, you believe in once saved, always saved, I get it, you know, I get it. And here's the funny thing, when I tell them, no, I don't. And they're like, well, yeah, you do. You're, you're saying that you can't lose your salvation. I'm like, yeah, I don't think you can lose your salvation like you lose your car keys. All right? 
And, and here's what I mean. Well, it sounds like you believe in once saved, always saved. Here's why, and I explained this last time, but for those of you who aren't here, once saved, always saved, do you know why people use that? They're trying to put you in a box. And this is what they mean. They do not mean this person believes that the work of Jesus was so amazing that it forever secured our place in him. That's not what they mean. They mean, so he's saying that I can just go out, leave my family, worship the devil, move to Africa, never come back, snort cocaine, do all the drugs I want, and, and just hate God for the rest of my life, and I'm still going to make it to heaven. It's always the worst case scenario. They never mean, so you're saying that when I lie, Jesus still has me. That's not what they mean. It's always, so you're saying that I can just worship the devil. And still be saved. And I shared this with you guys last time. Listen, I had, I had a, somebody come to me recently at another church. And they did. So you're saying that I can totally rebel against God, get by me a Ouija board, talk to all the dead folks I know, and, and serve the devil and still be saved. And, and this is what I said. Do you want to do that? End of conversation, because what do you think I heard? No. Why do you think you don't want to do that? Because faithful is he that calls you who will do it. All right? You don't want to do that because a change has taken place on the inside. We need to quit dealing with hypothetical scenarios. And this salvation debate on once saved, always saved, or can you lose yourself, it's all about a hypothetical scenario. I don't want to deal with the what is. I want to deal with the, the absolutes. The what the scripture makes absolutely clear. All right? Because, listen, I have people do this all the time. They're like, yeah, but what about that one verse? That one verse does not change all the verses that are abundantly clear. It doesn't change the dozens of verses. And that's why I'm making this a series. Listen, when this is over, I don't know how anyone can go away and say, yeah, you can just, just get rid of your salvation, right? So here's the debate normally. Well, all right, you can either sin away your salvation, which that's what we're going to talk about today. We don't believe that. Once saved, always saved. Grant's saying he don't, he don't believe that. So he must believe you can renounce your salvation. I don't believe that either. The word renounce means to formally, uh, uh, to formally announce your abandonment of. How many, every one of you in here that's been married for a long time, there's been probably some point in your marriage that you've renounced your spouse. I mean, I'm being serious. Listen, anybody that's been married in here for a long time, you've at least had that one moment where you thought, we're not going to make it through this. And you might have even had the moment where you've told them, I'm done. All right? Some of you can relate to that a lot more. <laughs> but what happens, it, over time, you realize that the love is stronger than anything wrong that's happened. Okay? So, listen, people, with God, this thing with God, it's a relationship. There's ups and downs. Why? Because we're human. All right, now he's perfect. He's not mad at you. He's not casting you away. But there's times, listen, in my life, there's been times I'm like, all right, I've went in my room, shut the door, and I've let God have it. 
right? Like, I'm upset. Like, I'm just being honest with you. I'm being vulnerable here. Like, within the last year, I went in my room, let God have it. If you're so good, if this stuff I preach is true, why do you allow this to happen, right? And here's the thing. So you get mad. You get upset. But you know what happens? I get over it. Why? Because he's faithful and just. He's good and only good. Right? He's not out to hurt me. He's out to bless me. He's, out, he's not out to make me sick. He, he's out to heal me. Right? So, so God is good. So I'm just saying, like, can you renounce your salvation? Listen, salvation is not just a pledge. And so the idea of renouncing your salvation is that salvation is a pledge. Salvation is not a pledge. Salvation is a heart thing. All right? So it's a heart thing. So there's people who are saying, I know, we know of a, a, a guy who used to be a pastor, and he's all the time putting on Facebook, well, you know, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm no longer a Christian. I'm no longer a Christian. But then, guess what he, what he'll talk about all the time? Well, I need you all to pray for so-and-so. Pray that Jesus will do this. I'm like, the heart is speaking. I don't care what you're renouncing. The heart is speaking. And the heart is saying what? I believe in Jesus. He's my solution. I may be going through a valley, but I know he's the solution. All right? So, again, this, this stuff, is, it's just, I don't want to deal with the hypothetical scenarios. I've yet to meet anyone who did what that lady asked me. So you're just saying, I can go out and worship. I've not met anyone that did that yet. I've been in church my entire life. I'm soon to turn 34. Been in church, was raised in church. My, one of some of my first memories in life was in church church and i've never seen anyone do that it's just it's it's just mind-blowing to me so so let's just stick to today i just want to stick to what is obvious right let's stick to what we know that we know and here's the one thing i'm convinced of that the new testament makes abundantly clear you cannot never ever by any means send away your salvation not sinned, sin. Because that's what most people think in this, this debate when you choose a side. Well, this person over here says, I think you can do whatever you want to and still be saved. And this person over here says, well, I think that you can sin so much that eventually uh, God gets, you know, he, his, his mercy clock runs out and he's upset with you and you're no longer saved. All right, that's usually where people fall. But, but listen, here's the one thing I know. You can never, ever sin away your salvation. All right, let, let, me, let, me, let me begin to prove this to you. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Because what I'm really going to focus on uh, beginning today and, and the next time I minister is proof that you can't sin away your salvation. But before I do that, I have to talk about sin. And I have to talk about what I'm not saying. Because if, if I don't, people can, can take it, you know. Because this is what people always say. I just heard this yesterday. Well, that guy there, he believes in once saved, always saved. And he believes that you can just do whatever you want to. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm just going to say it. going to be front. Here we go. Y'all ready? I believe you can do anything you want to. You can do anything you want to. But I trust God so much that I know that I can say that and you won't do whatever you want to. 
salvation is not a... We think salvation is, all right, I'm going to do better. From this point on, I'm going to do better. No, salvation is a new creation. Salvation is a complete change in who you are in your inner man. And that will affect the way you live this life. Do you, Okay, again, been in church all my life. I can tell you my experience here in this church and the churches that I know who, who teach this truth compared to the churches that, uh, that preach hard on sin and preach that you can lose your salvation. I can tell you 100% I dealt with much more sin in those churches than I do churches like this one. Because what people would do over and over is they would sin, they would mess up, and they'd think, I've already come this far. I might as well buy me a Ouija board. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like they go full out. Like I can't tell you that some of the Pentecostal churches I grew up in, I'm very thankful for my Pentecostal upbringing. I learned some awesome things. The churches that I, that I grew up in didn't do this, but churches that I knew, uh, man, what would happen is I can't tell you how many young couples I knew. Sin was preached so hard to them and they would get pregnant at a really early age, and the people and the people in the church would force them to get married. And then they get married, and guess what? In a year or two, they ain't married no more. So you know what they did? They ran off, they got married to somebody else, and they never came back. Why? Because they thought, I've already came this far. Right? Why? Because they thought that God was so disappointed in them that he had left them, or they had left him, not knowing that the whole time he had them in the palm of his hand. And he's saying, I and greater than you, right? So, so let's, let's talk about sin for a minute. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Let me say this. I, Grant Fraley, am against sin. Let me say this. God, your Father in heaven, is against sin. All right? But, but here, here's the thing. First, you shouldn't sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in you any an evil heart of unbelief. So notice he, he considers evil to be unbelief. In departing from the living God, verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the, the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, did I say go to verse 14? If I didn't, it's okay. But um, notice this. Actually, I've got this. Let me, I want to read this in the New Living Translation because it makes this so clear. So listen to me. They won't have this on the screen. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today. Now notice the warning isn't don't sin or you'll lose your salvation. What's the warning? So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, how, how are we faithful? Trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Here's what this is saying. Here is why you shouldn't sin. So continual sin, habitual sin, what it eventually does is it hardens your heart. Right? That's why like people who have an addiction to pornography, they'll tell you when they first began, uh, you know, they, were, they, they, they felt convicted. They knew they shouldn't do it. There was something wrong about it. But over time, they got to the place where it didn't bother them. Right? And you could, you could insert any sin in that category. 
what happens is our heart becomes hardened as we as we sin. And the scripture here says that it can become hardened to such a degree that you depart from the living God. Now, most people read that and they say, see there, you renounce your salvation, you lose your salvation. No, all that's saying is you just leave this beautiful relationship that you have. And suddenly, you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in yourself or whatever else is out there, right? So we don't want to get to that place where our heart is hardened against God. How do you know that? He's so good, why would you? I don't ever, I can remember uh, some of you visited, we used to live in Mount Sterling, we had this house, and this house had this beautiful view, all right? And it was this beautiful view of this farm, and, and there were cows, and there was beautiful, they had weddings over there all the time. It was beautiful. And I can remember when we first moved there, I was looking out the window one day, and I said, God, never let this view become normal to me. Because when something becomes normal to you, all of a sudden you look out and you don't see the beauty of it anymore. I can remember when we lived in, in, in Colorado, I had to pass uh, Pikes Peak every single day to go to school. And I loved every single morning that, mount, that, that peak looked completely different than the day before. There was never a day where it looked exactly the same. Every, and, but every day it was like it was more beautiful than what I seen yesterday. And then some days I'd go and it was cloudy and you couldn't see it. And I was like, where'd it go? You know, because that was like my favorite part about driving to, to, to the ministry. So what happens is when, when, when you... Sin and sin and sin and sin and go against the voice of God. Eventually, that view of that good God that you believed in, you become hardened to that. And all of a sudden, it no longer has the same freshness to you that it once had. Right? A lot of marriages fall apart for this very reason. Because we stop dating our spouse. We stop looking at them as special as when we first met them. Right? This same thing happens to us. If we sin, what eventually happens is if we live in this habitual sin, we'll get to this place where God's trying to speak to us, but we can't hear Him. Right? I'm not saying, it, but a lot of people mess up and they say, God's no longer speaking to me. No, God is talking to everybody. Believer, unbeliever, I, I'm persuaded that He's always talking. But what makes the difference in the believer and the unbeliever is the believer's heart is tender to the point where they're listening. So they hear. But the unbeliever, their heart's hardened towards that voice, right? And notice he says here, he says, harden not your heart as if it's your responsibility. So one of the ways, one of the reasons I don't, that I don't want to live in sin is because I don't want my heart to become hardened to God. To the point where when I hear Jeremiah stand up and preach about the grace of God, I'm like, eh, mm. right? Man. So sin, don't sin. It'll harden your heart towards God. And, and we, don't want, uh, we don't want to be in that place. Look with me at James chapter 1, verse 13. I, I talk about these verses a lot. But look here, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth 
death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, and then I'll, uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk more about this. Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Listen, I know a lot of grace preachers that try to explain seed time and harvest the way. They try to make it an old covenant thing. I got news for you. Genesis 8 was written about 40 chapters before the Old Covenant. Actually, 50 chapters before the Old Covenant. Seed time and harvest is a spiritual principle that is irrespective to dispensation or covenant. You don't believe me, get on top of this building, jump off. I guarantee you get a bad harvest. You want to break a leg, Right? That seed time and harvest, if you continually sow bad in your life, don't be surprised when you get bad results. I mean, I, I'm amazed that people would do away with this because it's, it's so, it's, it's obvious, right? If I, if I sit there, like, let, like what if, given a marriage example, what if every day, the seed that I sow in Keisha's heart is me just talking down to her. Me just saying the worst things that I can about her. Me pointing out all of her faults. But then I'm like, baby, don't worry. It's all good because we're under grace. Right? Jesus is good. We're saved. Don't, it's, all, it's all good. You don't look as good as you did yesterday, but it's all good. Right? Seed, time, and harvest. If I continually sow that seed, I will eventually reap the harvest of divorce or a horrible marriage, right? Seed time and harvest is a thing that's irrespective of covenants. If you continually do bad, you will eventually reap bad. And guess what? It won't be God. It's just the consequences of our own choices. Sin still has consequences. For, uh, and here's another example. Listen, a lot of people, um, like, think about this. Have you ever, is there ever something you've ate that just like, it didn't agree with you? Like, you're like, okay, this has messed me up. And then guess what? You get better, and guess what you do again? You eat it again. And guess what happens? It messes you up. All right? Remember when Paul told Timothy, he said, listen, don't drink, he said, drink no longer the wine or drink no longer the water, but drink a little wine for your stomach's infirmity's sake. And people go, and they're like, see right there, that tells you you should have a little bit of wine. If you have a little bit of wine, you know, well, I mean, there, there may be advantages to having a little bit of wine, but I'm just talking about it. what Paul was actually saying there. Notice he said, drink no longer the water. He didn't say, all right, you're, you're drinking the water, now drink a little bit of wine. No, he said, quit drinking the water. Why? Because Timothy kept drinking the water and getting sick as a dog. So he said, listen, you thirsty, have some wine. It'll help you. Quit drinking the water. If somebody came up to me every single Sunday and was like, brother, I ate Wendy's last night, and it's just got me sick. All right, praying for you. Next Sunday, oh, I had Wendy's last night, and it got me sick. Okay, pray for you. Third Sunday, man, I went to Wendy's again last night. I had a coupon. And it's made me... What do you think eventually I'm going to say? At some point, the loving thing to do is say, hey... Guess what? Cross the road, go to McDonald's, give up on this Wendy's dream you've got because it ain't working out for you. Seed time and harvest. 
All right? If you, can, if you see something in your life and it, it is giving you destructive results or the results that you don't want, just quit it. Quit fooling with it. Don't do it. Do you know, we think, a lot of people have this idea that sin is God looked at whatever was fun and said, I don't want them to do that because I don't want them to have any fun. So let's call that sin and say they can't do it. And right, that's, that's the way a lot of people look at sin. God had a plan before the foundation of the world. And in his foreknowledge, he looked at all the hypothetical scenarios. And he seen all the things that people might do. And anything that he seen that might wreck their life, guess what he called it? Sin. Do you know why God's against adultery? Has anyone ever seen adultery like, like oh, you commit adultery and everything's just like fine? No, there's bad results that come from it. If you kill someone, guess what? If you get caught, you're going to prison. Seed time harvest. All right. Sin is that which destroys our life. And God has labeled it so in order that we might just stay away from it. So, so, so first thing I want to point out about sin is you shouldn't do it. Now the next thing I want to point out is you don't have to do it. And this one is big. Because the, the same people who will argue with me and say you can lose your salvation, they'll also say you can't help but sin. Because it's just who you are. You're a sinner saved by grace, right? That's their identity. Sinner saved by grace. Look, if you believe that, you shouldn't be surprised when you're going around continually living in sin. Because you've said, I am a sinner. Yeah, I'm saved by grace, but sin is what I do. All right? Look with me at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things write out unto you that you sin not. So he's saying that it's possible for you not to sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he put an if on sin. He said, I write these things to you so you won't sin. Now he couldn't say that if it was impossible for you to live that way. Now I'm not saying you're going you're, you're gonna to hit it 100%. I'm talking about these big things, right? We all do things that we sort of neglect that sin, Right? But as far as this, this stuff like, if you have this mindset, well, you know, I'm just, that's what I do. I'm human. I sin. That's what I, you're going to do it. But when you know what Jesus has done on the inside of you, you have the power to say no. Right? Go with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. So is he. Amen. So look here, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If you're not getting that accusation, you're not sharing the gospel. Because that is, I told a, a pastor friend of mine yesterday, he said, you know, somebody was accusing him of saying you can do whatever you want to. I said, can, you know, hey, you know what that means? You're preaching the gospel. Because if you, if, you, if you have never had this thrown at you, and you share the gospel a lot, you're not sharing the gospel of, of the New Testament. Verse 2. God forbid. And look, he doesn't say, now let me tell you the way I would have said this 12 years ago, answering this question. Can, should we just sin all we want to so grace gets stronger? I would have said, God forbid, because you'll lose your salvation. God forbid, because God will get you. Paul doesn't go that route. Look what Paul does. God forbid... How shall we that are dead to sin 
live any longer therein. So Paul didn't go at the... Well, let me threaten their salvation and that is straighten them up. Paul came at it from the angle and said, Listen, you're dead to it. That's not who you are. That's not what you do. The only people who feel guilty about their sins are Christians. Why? Because there's something on the inside of you saying, Don't do it. Yep. Don't, uh, don't do it. Pump the brakes. Don't do that. You shouldn't have done that. Right? Listen, the unbelievers aren't doing that. They, they, I mean, on the, on, on the grand scale of things, they don't, other than, as long as they don't violate their conscience, they don't do that. Right? But, but believers, we're the ones, there ain't no unbeliever going around saying, I wonder if I've committed the unpardonable sin. It's only believers that do that. For, why? Because we've had this sin consciousness ingrained into us. But the fact that you, that you have that, that don't do that on the inside of you, you shouldn't have done that on the inside of you, that is testimony that you've been born again. That is the spirit of the living God on the inside of you reminding you of who you are and what your potential is in Him. Verse 3, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this. Now, you want to know why, Christ, why there are Christians out there who live in, in this cycle of sin? Because they don't know this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with them, with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve Sin. Now, when I was in the Baptist church, we had this illustration. There's two natures on the inside of you, like two dogs. There's, your, there's, there's the, the righteousness part of you, but then there's the sin nature. There's your righteous nature and your sin nature, and they're dwelling both on the inside of you, like two dogs, and whichever dog you feed the most is the one who's going to be the strongest. Right? That, that's the illustration that we used to use. But it says plainly here, your old man was crucified. What's that mean? Dead. Gone. As a believer, you do not have a sin nature. And the fact that you don't want to sin and that when you do, you, you have this, man, I, I, I knew better, I shouldn't have done that, that is proof that you, that that old sin nature is gone. Dead. Crucified. It's over. Verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So listen, you don't have to sin. Why? You're free from it. You don't have to sin. Why? It's not your servant. We need to take... Listen, when you begin being tempted with something, you know one of the best things you can do is you remind yourself first and foremost, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is not who I am. Do you know the way I read the law as a believer? And I'm talking about the, the, the you know, Exodus through Deuteronomy. He said he would write his laws on my heart. So when I go to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I read something, there was a time in my life I'd read, and I'd be like, oh, thank God I'm not, you know, I'm not under that covenant. There was also a time in my life I'd think, okay, I guess I should let my grandparents stone me, right? But listen, here, here's, here's the way I read the law now. When I read thou, the thou shall not, you know what, I, I speak it out loud. 
I thank you, Lord, that this is a part of the new creation in me, and I don't want to do these things. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to murder. I don't want to lie. I don't want to covet. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've written your laws on my heart. That's not who I am. I'm, I do not want to do those things. Right? We need to, listen, when temptation comes your way, you just need to say, I'm free from it. I'm free from sin. I don't want to do it. Listen, because remember, James 1, sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. Barry Bennett, who's out from Karis Bible College, he made a post, I think it was just yesterday, is like, which it is finished do you want part of? There's Jesus speaking from the cross and saying it is finished, right, when he, when he finished the law and fulfilled the law. But then there's James 1, when sin is, when it is finished, brings forth death. Which it is finished do you want to take part of? I'll take, I'll take the one that Jesus gave us, right? I'll take the fulfillment of Jesus. But, but listen here, so let's, let's continue the next verse. Um, verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. Listen, here's another attitude we used to have. We used to always talk about, I got to die daily. Every day, I got to die to sin. No, I just need to wake up every day, and if I'm tempted by something, say, I'm already dead to it. I died to it once, right? But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the word reckon means to take inventory of. You need to take inventory of your life, not by looking on the inside and saying, where's some sin at? Is there there any sin in there? No, take inventory of your life, and the inventory that you should have in your heart is what Jesus has said about you. Jesus has said that I'm dead to this, that I'm free from this, that I'm not its servant, that I'm not its slave. I don't have a sin nature. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm justified. I'm filled. I'm baptized. I'm crucified. I'm, I'm resurrected. I've been ascended. I sit, at, I sit at the right hand of the Father. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm secure. I have eternal life. That should be our confession. That should be what you take inventory of in your heart. And look here, verse 12. These two words are the most powerful words in this chapter. Let not. Don't yield to it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Now let me point this out. In the New Testament, the word sin, we talk about it a lot in the church. And we primarily talk about it as a verb. Something you do, right? But in the New Testament, uh, sin is mentioned as a noun, or let's say it's mentioned as a verb 43 times. It's mentioned as a noun 174 times. So what is that like? Four times almost more? In this chapter, Romans 6, it's referring to a noun one time. I mean, or a verb one time. What you do one time. Every other time it's talking about a noun. Now, what's that mean? W.E. Vine, who's one of the greatest Greek scholars of our time, he gave this definition of sin as a noun. It's a principle or a source of an action. It's an inward element producing acts. 
It's a governing principle or power. What, what is that? It's a sin nature. That's what we're talking about. So you could replace uh, these, these other times the word sin is mentioned, you could just replace it with sin nature. And some translations do that. All right? And so here's what he's saying. That sin nature is crucified. And because it's crucified, you don't have to allow sin in your life. It does not have to reign in your life. All you have to do is not yield to it. All right? So, let's go, verse 13. And this proves this. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Any teaching of grace that says you have to sin, you can't help it, it's not biblical grace. Because biblical grace says, it's like this, I've shared this with you guys before, listen, every truth of the kingdom is hidden inside a paradox. And you don't understand that truth until you can understand the paradox. I'll give you one. Labor ye therefore to enter into rest. That's a paradox. When Keisha, if Keisha was to tell me, honey, I need you to uh, do all the dishes and clean all the clothes while you rest, that makes no sense, right? You, you don't tell me to go to work and sleep. It, it's a paradox. It, it's, that's, it's contradictory statements. I don't labor while I rest. That makes no sense. But, but the author of Hebrews says labor to enter into rest. It's a paradox, all right? You don't understand a truth. So, so here's, here's this paradox that I'm talking about right now. You don't have to sin. You have power over sin. That, that, that's true. But on the other side of that, even when you do sin, God doesn't hold it against you. God's forgiven you of all your sins. He's not turning his back on you. He's not going to punish you. Those seem like contradictory statements, but that is the paradox of truth, right? We don't have to sin, but if we do, we have an advocate with the Father, all right? So I'm just going to take like 10, 15 minutes and just try and just kind of get started down this road. What I'm going to do, I'm going to spend in a few weeks, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to teach again, I'm going to wrap this up. But I'm going to give you like 10 biblical reasons you can't sin away your salvation, all right? And I just want to look at a few this morning just to get us started, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish. But um, the first one I want to look at, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It says, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, not holy, H-O-L-Y, but holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. So this wholeness that he's talking about, spirit, soul, and body, it's not your responsibility. It's God's. The illustration I gave earlier of getting Graham across the road at school, that's my responsibility. And I, and I shared last time, listen, when Graham's had a bad day at school, I don't stop at that sidewalk and say, tell you what, your teacher's got up with me today, you weren't very good, you get yourself across the road. I would never 
ever in a million years do that. Why? Because he's my son. But yet we think God does that to his sons and daughters. Right? And that's just not the way it is. The first reason why you can't send away your salvation is because your salvation is God's responsibility. Uh, One more. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. What What is his will, Jesus? Verse 39. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing. So if you say you can lose your salvation... I know you think you're putting the responsibility on the person, but you're actually blaming Jesus. Because Jesus said, it is the Father's will that of all which he's given me, what's he talking about? People. Out of all the people that he's given me, those who believe in me, I should lose nothing. So the moment we say, Brian, you lost your salvation, we've just said Jesus failed to keep Brian saved. We think we're putting the blame on Brian. We're actually putting the blame on Jesus. Because Jesus said, I will lose nothing. Your salvation is God's responsibility. Let's look at this one. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God. We're going to go through these kind of quick because I want to wrap up here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Notice it did not say God who will not lie. God cannot lie. So if Jesus said, I will lose nothing, if Jesus said that nothing can pluck you, not anything at all can pluck you out of my hand, He cannot lie about that. So the moment you say that someone can be in in union with God, that they can have eternal life, but then suddenly they cannot have eternal life, you have said God can lie. So here's reason number two, you can't send away your salvation. God can't lie. And He's promised you that what He began in you, He will complete it. Numbers chapter 23, verse 16 through 20. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. Now this is an Old Testament story. It's a shadow of, of what we have. And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, What has the Lord spoken? And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and shall he not do it, or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? Listen, he has promised to save you eternally. He has promised that what he began he will finish. He cannot lie and he, sh- he will not lie. Right? If he's spoken it, listen, This book is written, John said, that which is written. This book is written not to make you doubt your salvation. 
Everything in this book is written with one purpose, to, that you may know that you have eternal life. And if that's not the way you read it, you're reading it wrong. Because that which is written is written that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, verse, did we have a verse after that? Verse 20. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the moment he blessed us, that blessing can never be reversed. We can never be cursed, right? One more. We're going to finish up here. So reason number one, you can't sin away your salvation. It's God's responsibility. Reason number two, God cannot lie. Now here's reason number three. Your performance did not give you your salvation. And since it didn't give you your salvation, it can't take away your salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. So how do you connect to the grace? Through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So how did you get saved? By grace, through faith. Nothing to do with your works. But we turn around and we say, all right, now that's the way you got saved, but now from this point on it's about your works. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 verse 5. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order. Look at this. And the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Why is he talking about that? Verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. So we don't get saved by grace through faith, not of works, and then continue by grace through faith of works. No, how we started in this thing, by grace through faith, not of works, we continue by grace through faith, not of works. All right? Your works didn't give it, so your works can't take it away. Let me give you an example of this. Um... This church, I don't know how many years ago it was, but uh, this church ordained me right, as a minister of the gospel. When this church ordained me, do you realize because this church has bylaws and stuff, the only, the only people who have the right to ever take back that ordination is this church. I cannot go to Hazard next Sunday and preach in a church and them come to me and say, you know that ordination that Grace Point Church in Georgetown gave you? Give it to me. Or taken. Why? They didn't give it. They can't take it away. I actually had an uncle, a great uncle, the, the uncle who I, the pastor I grew up under, my uncle, he actually, he was preaching something one time and people got so upset, they said, we want to see your credentials. We want to see your ordination. Because we don't think you deserve them. You can't teach this stuff and be ordained. And his response was, you didn't give them, you can't take them. All right, so your works can't take your salvation because they didn't give it. It's by grace through faith, not of works. And listen, he said if it was of works, he said not of works lest any man should boast. The moment you say your salvation is about your works, you're giving man a, a place to boast. You're giving man a reason to brag. You're saying, listen, that salvation... like. It's like, like me getting Graham across the road 
It's like, if I, it's like me saying, Graham got himself across the rope. No, he didn't. I, I, I'm the one who had a hold of him. I'm the one who got him across the road. Listen, he's seven. I promise you, if he can play in the road, he's going to do it. Right? I mean, now, me and his mom's taught him better, but I'm just saying, like, in a kid, right, they don't see the dangers that we see. So that's the way it is with the Father. He, he gets, listen, when we get to heaven, whether that's through the, you know, Death or whether that's through uh, uh, the return of Jesus. When we get there, when you read the book of Revelation, they're only praising one being, one person, one man, and that's Jesus. I don't read anywhere in the book of Revelation where Moses is getting praised. I don't read anywhere in the book of Revelation where Paul is getting praised. I don't read one place in the book of Revelation where Peter is getting praised and Elijah, and we could go on and on and on. The only one who gets the praise is Jesus. When we get to heaven, and in a thousand years from now, and you know, hopefully, it, man, hopefully heaven will be on earth by that point. But when we go up to people and we're like, "How'd you get here?" The answer is going to be the same for everybody. Jesus. I only got here because of Jesus. The only reason I'm here is because of Jesus. Right? He is the only one that that is going to receive the praise. For, for that there. The only one. Why? Because it's his responsibility. He's taking it upon himself. It's not up to us. Because the moment it's up to us, we begin to boast. And when we begin to boast, Jesus doesn't get the glory. We do. That's my biggest problem with legalism. In legalism, man gets the glory. But under grace, God gets the glory. Man, that's powerful. So I'm going to finish this up here in a few weeks. And there's a lot more I could, I could say, but there's a lot more to it. So we're just going to stop here. Has this blessed you guys today? Just like I said, guys, leave here knowing my salvation is secure in Christ. I intentionally titled this message in this series, The Security of the Believer. Right? I didn't call it, you know, all these other titles people call it. The security of the believer, that's intentional. What you need to know, remember we talked about this last time. Well, are you saying I don't have any responsibility in my salvation? You do. Here's your responsibility. Look to Jesus. These hypothetical scenarios we come out with, just look to Jesus. Is it this or that? Look to Jesus. What about when I? Look to Jesus. What if I? Look to Jesus. That's your part. That is faith in a nutshell. We go to Hebrews 11, 1 for our definition of faith. I say go to Hebrews 12 and 2, looking unto Jesus. That is faith. That is new covenant faith looking to Jesus. He's made it that easy. He's made it that simple. But man's come along and said, I need some of that glory. I need a slice of that glory. So let's say, I, let's say that I play a bigger part than just looking to Jesus. The example that Jesus gave when he talked about salvation in John chapter 3 around verse 14, 15, he said as the, as, as, as the serpent was put upon the pole, right? Remember that story. Did you know there was no medical doctor who could come along in that story and say, yeah, we gave them this medicine and that medicine saved them. Every person there who didn't die who got saved, it was because they looked to the brass, on the brass uh, serpent, which represented Jesus on the cross, right? 
No man got the glory for that. No man got the glory for that. Only God who put the plan in place. Our salvation is secure in Him. We don't want to sin. We don't have to sin. But even if we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. This bless you guys. Um, we'll go ahead and take up our offering um, right now. If you need to give an envelope, you can raise your hand. We have time. Does anybody have anything they'd like to share? Connie, go ahead.